If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the second in our series of podcasts which delve into everything you wanted to know but were too afraid to ask about some of history's biggest subjects. And this time it's the Tudors. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, put the questions to Tracy Borman. 
Right. Today, I am joined by the historian, author, broadcaster and novelist Tracy Borman, who is a leading expert on the Tudors. Her books include The Private Lives of the Tudors, Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him, Thomas Cromwell, The Hidden Story of Henry VIII's Most Faithful Servant, and Elizabeth's Women, The Hidden Story of the Virgin Queen. She's also joint chief curator at Historical Palaces, so basically she knows her onions. And she's written for BBC History Mag and History Extra and indeed BBC History Review many times over the years, as well as appearing at our events quite a few times. So she was the first person I thought of for this next round of our new Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask series. And of course, today's topic is the Tudors. The format is we ask for questions from you, our readers and listeners, via our social media channels at History Extra on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And then I did a a quick bit of research uh, to see uh, which were the most widely asked queries about the Tudors on Google's too. So we've got a blend of that, uh, which hopefully means we'll answer a lot of the things that you're dying to know about. Plus, there was also some more random questions that you might not even know that you wanted to know about. But anyway, we'll see how we go. So, Tracy, thanks for doing this. How are you? Uh, absolute pleasure. I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. And you were just saying you're uh, you're in the middle of writing. So, um, do you want to tell us about your current project? Yeah. So, one thing that quarantine is very good for is getting books written. When uh, the kids are letting me do that, and uh, my new book is a history of the monarchy. So, it's a very big book, and I have to say, until the current situation, I was getting worried about finishing it. But now it's racing along. Uh, it's due out uh, towards the end of next year uh, because the Queen's Platinum Jubilee is coming up so it seemed like the right time to make this uh, kind of history cool and a thousand years did you say starting with 1066? a thousand years yes a bit yeah. of a prelude on the anglo-saxons so as not to upset anyone who who's a devotee of that period but really it's 1066 when it all gets going Okay, so you've got some great stories to tell there. And of course, what we're going to talk about now will no doubt feature in, uh, in to, to, to large extent, I'm sure, in uh, in that book. I, I think the uh, Tudors chapter might be a bit longer than the others. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, so Tudors is what we're doing. So we've got loads of questions um, and uh, we're just going to rattle through them. I've ordered them uh, broadly chronologically, so uh, so we'll see um, see where we go. So let's start off with the, uh, the sort of the basic one, uh, a quick one from Google. Why are the Tudors called the Tudors? So this is because Sir Owen Tudor, um, who was one of the most powerful Welsh noblemen um, of the time, he married Catherine of Valois, so the widow of Henry V. And they had a son, Edmund Tudor, who was the father of Henry VII, so the first of the Tudor monarchs. So really, the Tudors were a very powerful aristocratic Welsh family. So that is the reason for their name. Okay, brilliant. Uh, and then another Google one, which I guess uh, is uh, it depends on your preference, but why are the Tudors so popular? Uh, obviously, you've written quite a lot about the Tudors, so you must find them interesting. So uh, what's what's the score there? I think I'm asked this more than any other thing, and I probably change my answer each time. So the answer I'm going to give today is that I think really when it comes to the Tudors, you can't make it up. You've got everything. You've got the drama, the colour of the age, a king who marries six times, a virgin queen. It's a very self-confident age where, you know, we're expanding overseas, the Shakespeare flowering of culture. And I think, you know, we, we tend to look back, this was the kind of glory age. Of course, there was a darker side to it as well. But I think really, for me, it's all about the drama. 
Okay, and we've got some great stories in there. So, uh, so, and we'll probably come to those in a bit. Okay, um, th- this is apparently a very popular Google question. Also, uh, it was asked by uh, Rob Rodriguez on Instagram, uh, which is: Are the Windsors related to the Tudors? So, your current book project will uh, will no doubt tackle this as well. What, it's going to have what's the, the mother. Of, <laughs> it's, sorry, it's going to have the mother of all flam- family trees at the beginning. I tell you, but um, so as I understand it, yes, of course they are related. It gets a bit kind of tenuous at times, but the current queen is, I think, the fourteenth great granddaughter of Henry VII. And the main link between the Tudors and uh, the Windsors is through the Scottish royal family, actually, when Henry uh, Henry's daughter Margaret married James IV of Scotland. And it was their descendants who really became the future kings and queens of England. So it was more Scottish, uh, the link, than English. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so uh, let's go on to the monarchs one by one. Um, some of the uh, some of the Tudor monarchs have got a, a, a few more questions than others, but um, Henry the Seventh um, did Henry the Seventh have a legitimate claim to the throne? Asks Google. It was sort of legitimate, but it didn't bear close scrutiny, is what I would say. So he was pretty much the last Lancastrian standing by the time uh, he came to the throne. Now, even though he was the son of the formidable uh, Lady Margaret Beaufort and she was descended from, you know, Edward III, it was through an illegitimate line, ultimately. Uh, So she was a descendant of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford before they were married. So that was the bit that made the Tudors claim to the throne frankly, a little bit dodgy. Okay. And then uh, moving on to to the end of his life, uh, apparently this is another a big one on Google. How did Henry VII die? Well, Henry VII uh, suffered ill health for a number of years before his death in April 1509. What he seemed to have been particularly prone to was um, kind of respiratory illness. And um, it may have been tuberculosis that actually killed him. We have descriptions that his breathing was very laboured. He was unable to stomach any food. He'd grown very, very weak and emaciated. And he always seemed to get ill in the winter months. The damp would kind of play on his chest um, a bit. And so it was probably tuberculosis, but the way in which symptoms are described, it, it has to be a best guess, really. Okay. Now, here's one which um, which probably requires a little bit more explanation. This comes from uh, His Dorian on Twitter, um, one, of, one, of our, uh, one of our bigger Twitter fans, actually. She's often uh, asking questions. Do you think Sir Roland Velville was Henry VII's illegitimate son? So who's Sir Roland Velville, I suppose? Sir Roland Velville was actually a prominent courtier in uh, the reign of Henry VII. And he had come over from Brittany, where, of course, Henry VII uh, was in exile before taking the throne. Now, there is a theory that, in fact, he was Henry's illegitimate son. Now, this is supported by the fact that he was shown such great favour and people don't really know that much about him and why he was shown favour. And his parentage was unknown. So I personally think it's it's very plausible, uh, the, the theory that, in fact, he was Henry VII's illegitimate son. Okay. Now, Andy M on Twitter has, uh, has asked for a, a fairly specific um, question here. Uh, expressed as a percentage, what is the chance that Perkin Warbeck was actually Richard of Shrewsbury? As so a percentage. What's the, what's the percentage? <laughs> so I would say a solid 6% 
for this. So it doesn't sound like much um, because I think really um, the weight of evidence suggests that both um, both of the sons of Edward IV, the so-called princes in the tower, really were in the tower and they both were put to death. I'm not going to go into by whom because there'll be an absolute Twitter storm. Um, but I do believe that they were both the princes, Richard and Edward. There's no evidence that one of them was spirited away, Richard in this case, and later uh, tried to take the throne um, as a kind of perk in Warbeck. But we don't know for certain. So that's why I'm keeping the 6% in, because who knows, we may uncover a piece of evidence that proves actually, yeah, all those conspiracy theories were absolutely bang on. Okay, so there's a 6% chance there, Andy, 6%. <laughs> okay, um, let's move on to Henry VIII. Obviously, we've got a load of questions here. Everyone's Everyone loves to hear about Henry VIII. Um, Google, uh, a big question on that is how tall was Henry VIII? Do we know how tall he was? Well, we can be pretty sure he was about six foot, six foot two. And we know that from his suits of armour, which are in the Tower of London, which give us quite precise waist measurements, but we can also pretty accurately judge his height as well. Yeah, he was a big strapping man, wasn't he? That's he the, that's really the main thing was about him. a big strapping man, very different to his father, looked much more like his grandfather, Edward IV. Okay. And Google, uh, everyone always wants to know how people died. How did Henry VIII <laughs> die and how old was he when he died? So Henry VIII was 55 years old when he died, uh, which was a fair innings for the time, obviously not so much today. Um, it, what he died of uh, was probably a number of related causes, but he'd had these horrible ulcerated legs for a number of years. And the way in which those ulcerated legs were treated meant that um, the wounds were kept always open, so they were always prone to infection. And he almost died on several occasions of, of blood poisoning, effectively. So it may have been that. It may have been linked, though, to his obesity. I mean, here was a man who, whose waist measured about 54 inches uh, by this time. He was you know, a, a colossal figure of a man. And that must have just exacerbated this problem he had with uh, with his ulcerated legs. Um, quite often in history, when it's describing royal deaths, uh, the words defluxion of the throat are used, as indeed they were for Henry and his daughter Elizabeth. I think really it's just a shortness of breath, frankly. Um, but for Henry, I think it was much more to do with the blood poisoning. Okay. And then uh, one that's linked to this, uh, actually, this is uh, Lynn Freitas on Twitter said, she's asked uh, that she's heard that Henry VIII's behaviour became more violent and erratic after he sustained a head injury while jousting. So any truth to that? And does that play into his potential death at all? Yeah, this theory gained a lot of ground in recent years. I think there was a sort of fairly modern day medical study uh, that suggested a brain injury from that jousting accident in 1536. But in fact, I don't buy into it because... That theory is based on the idea that Henry was knocked unconscious during the jousting accident. There's only one source that says he was knocked unconscious, and that was written by someone who was in Paris at the time. So there are no reliable eyewitnesses to say that it was actually a, a, an accident that involved any kind of brain injury. And also, I think Henry's mental decline was much more gradual. It wasn't a kind of overnight change, as would be more suggested by a, by a sort of brain injury. Okay. Is it true that Henry VIII considered himself a Yorkist, asks Richard Tracy on Twitter. I would absolutely agree with Richard Tracy because um, I think Henry always identified with his Yorkist grandfather, 
uh, Edward IV. As I mentioned, he looked a lot like him. And also his mother, Elizabeth of York, made sure that he was surrounded by Yorkists during his upbringing, in particular Arthur Plantagenet, who was his illegitimate uncle, one of the illegitimate sons of Edward IV. So really the Yorkists were the glamorous lot. They were the, the strapping kind of military leaders as opposed to the slightly more puny Lancastrians. So Henry always liked to think himself a Yorkist. Okay. Um, right. Phil M84 on Twitter wants to know, why don't we hear much about Margaret Pole? And then he goes on to say, was she truly the last of the Plantagenet princesses? Well, if I had my way, Dave, we'd hear a great deal more about Margaret Pole because I have suggested her as a book and it's been poo-pooed as not oh. being one that would have enough appeal. So perhaps we ought to start some kind of Twitter campaign going for a, a new book on Margaret. I think she's fascinating. She wasn't quite the last, really, of the Plantagenets. Um, her line through her sons um, and other members of the Pole family did actually continue uh, well into the 17th century. And um, Plantagenet blood were, was in families such as the Hastings, the Percys, the Nevilles, really big ancient families in England's history. So she wasn't the last, but I do think she was really significant. If she hadn't been, Henry wouldn't have bothered cutting her head off. Sure. Okay. Now then, uh, th this is a good one. People always want to know this. So this is Tracy <laughs> Jacobs on Twitter. Is it true that people wanted to be keeper of the stool so they could have the king's undivided attention? It absolutely is bang on. So uh, a groom of the stool sounds like the worst job in history. You basically accompany the king to the toilet and clean him up, etc. afterwards. Not a particularly nice job, but you get to be with the king alone. And actually for quite a long time and at regular intervals. And so this was gold dust because in order to get ahead at court, you had to see the king a lot. And grooms of the stool did very well out of the position they used the time with the king to petition for titles and estates for themselves, uh, to promote the interests of their mates. So, yeah, absolutely. It was the plum job at court. OK. Now, we've got uh, we've got one from Sir Walter, not the Sir Walter, I guess, on Twitter. Um, uh, and he asked, why did Lady Jane Grey's supporters so quickly abandon her? Yeah, it's a good one, this, because um, Lady Jane Grey did have a body of powerful supporters um, before uh, Edward VI died, and uh, they were quality over quantity, however. They were powerful at the time, but not great in number. And it soon became very, very obvious to those um, supporters of Lady Jane that actually Mary Tudor, the rightful queen really, had far more support and she had popular support as well as military support. So they kind of saw the writing on the wall and tried to defect uh, to Mary's camp really. Um, but of course, you know, they, they mostly got their comeuppance because she wasn't going to forgive that in a hurry. Okay. Right. Now then, uh, what have we got next? I'm going to uh, move that next one. Edward VI. What if Edward VI had lived? One of the greatest what-ifs in history, I think. Well, I, I think he had the makings of a greater tyrant than his father, Henry VIII. He was a terrible uh, young man, really. In, in his youth, he once flew into such a rage that he grabbed one of his falcons from its perch and tore it to pieces uh, in order to get revenge on one of his tutors for trying to tell him what to do. So I think he had the makings of a tyrant. I think we'd have seen a much more radical move 
towards the reformed religion. He was a much more staunch Protestant uh, than anybody in Henry VIII's regime. So the Reformation would have happened much more quickly, much more decisively. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of successes, he, he probably would have married, had children of his own. Uh, we wouldn't have had Bloody Mary. And the greatest shame, we wouldn't have had Elizabeth, my own favourite. Okay. Now, we didn't get any questions on on Bloody Mary, Mary I, um, which Poor is perhaps, Mary. It's, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Because, you know, she has been talked about quite a lot uh, in recent popular history, so you would have thought that she would uh, be uh, attracting more interest. But um, uh, Google, there are some searches on that. How, how did Mary I die is, uh, is, a, is a popular Google query. Well, there's no defluxion of the throat this time. What I think we can be fairly certain is, is that she was suffering from some kind of cancer. And tragically, I think that explains her so-called phantom pregnancies, because she did twice display quite obvious signs of pregnancy, particularly a swelling of the stomach. That may actually have been a symptom of ovarian cancer. Um, and, it, and, and we know that she suffered um, in, in that respect. She um, she often had stomach aches. She, she suffered a lot of pain um, growing up as well as in her adult life. And uh, from the symptoms, there is, I think, quite a plausible theory that, that that's what killed her. It was, it was some kind of cancer. Mm. Do you still get a lot of people uh, asking you uh, or confusing uh, Mary I and Mary Queen of Scots? All the time, actually, yes. Um, my own husband being the most recent of those, but then he's not a historian, so he can be forgiven. But yeah, it is still quite a popular misconception, that one. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, we've got loads of questions on uh, on the last monarch, Elizabeth uh, the first. Um, uh, we haven't talked about Lady Jane Grey. Well, actually, no, we did, didn't we? We, uh, we a did, little we bit. Question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, Elizabeth first. Jill Perestrom Wright on Twitter asks, "Why didn't Elizabeth marry and have children to ensure the succession of the Tudor line?" Easy question. <laughs> Why didn't Elizabeth marry? I think she had learned from the examples of her past. Uh, her mother was executed. She saw a stepmother, Catherine Howard, executed. She saw the miserable marital life of her sister, half-sister, Mary. And so she'd learned that really it's a really tough gig to get married as a queen and do it well. Um, and also she knew she couldn't marry somebody from abroad because her sister had done that. It was a disaster. If she married one of her own subjects, it would be deeply divisive. So I think she just thought, I will have but one mistress here, as she famously said, and no master. And I have to say, I don't blame her. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I don't think Elizabeth would ever have run the risk of having a full-blown affair, not after everything she'd been through to get to the throne. Uh, so she kept Dudley close, but not that close. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. 
Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We've got a few questions about um, uh, Elizabeth's love life, I suppose, which is always perennially fascinating to people. Um, What's the likelihood of Catherine Carey being Henry VIII's illegitimate child, making the fantastically named Lettuce Knowles doubly related to Elizabeth and so increasing their rivalry over Dudley at court? That's from Miss Levitt, who I think is a schoolteacher on Twitter. I think it's very likely, actually, because um, Catherine Carey was born in about 1524, which would coincide with when we know Henry VIII was having an affair with her mother, uh, Mary Boleyn. And there's more evidence, I guess, more circumstantial in that uh, Elizabeth absolutely adored Catherine. She promoted her above every other lady uh, once she was queen. And although she certainly never acknowledged that they might be uh, closer kin uh, than was publicly known. I think in private, the fact that she trusted her so much, she gave her so much favour. I think to me, uh, that is Elizabeth recognising that, in fact, uh, they were probably much more closely related. Okay. Um, Was Dudley Elizabeth's secret lover? Again, that's from Miss Levitt again. Miss Levitt asks some great questions, or her students do. Uh, actually, yeah, no, she says it's her, her year 12s ask the question, doesn't it? There so you go. There you go. Uh, the burning question of Tudor history. Uh, well, I personally think uh, that Elizabeth really was the Virgin Queen. I think she and Dudley were undoubtedly very, very close and loved each other deeply. Theirs was a 50-year relationship. They met when they were eight years old. Um, but I don't think Elizabeth would ever have run the risk of having a full-blown affair, not after everything she'd been through to get to the throne. Uh, so she kept Dudley close, but not that close. Okay. Uh, now then, here's another sort of what-if from Bev Lawrence on Facebook. Um Uh, who asked what would have happened if Elizabeth had been a boy who lived to succeed Henry VIII, uh, and then she asked specifically, would Anne Boleyn have been safe or might Henry still have tired of her? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, If Elizabeth had been a boy, Anne Boleyn would have been saved. Even if, as we know, Henry was getting really tired of Anne Boleyn, he found her behaviour kind of appealing in a mistress, not so much in a wife. There's no way he'd have got rid of her if Elizabeth had been a boy. It would have protected her uh, for the rest of her life. Um, As it was, of course, things turned out rather differently. And if I may, in a very shameless plug, I have a new series coming out about the downfall of Anne Boleyn, uh, which is due out on the anniversary of her execution on the 19th of May. And I I considered this question in there at quite some length. Where where can we watch this series? So it's coming out on Channel 5. Okay, cool. Um, which presumably may be available in the States as well. Some of our listeners are in the States, but Absolutely. I would imagine. Absolutely. Th- and I think there's, there are ways to watch online, that kind of thing. 
Okay. What was the title of this? It's called, at the moment, it's called The Fall of Anne Boleyn. And it takes a forensic look at three key days in her downfall uh, leading up to her execution at the Tower. Okay, cool. One to look out for. Thank you. Right. Okay. Uh, We talked a little bit about Mary, uh, Queen of Scots, just now. Uh, But Alid Thomas 99 on Twitter says, when Elizabeth captured, uh, sorry, kidnapped, then murdered the head of a foreign foreign sovereign state, bracket Scotland, why wasn't that seen as a uh, casus belli, uh, uh, a provocation of war? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It was all about diplomacy, really. So even though uh, Mary's son, James uh, VI of Scotland, he sort of made a bit of a show of protesting about his mother's execution, but not very seriously, because he knew that he was in line for the English throne. There were really no other viable uh, candidates, really, to take over from Elizabeth. So he, of course, you know, he had to, for form's sake, sort of show himself to be a bit disgruntled uh, that Elizabeth had chopped his mother's head off. But it didn't go any further than that. And relations were soon restored because he had his eyes on the ultimate prize of being King of England. Mm. So how did Mary, Queen of Scots, end up in that situation? Uh, in terms of being executed by Elizabeth. Uh, Well, she flung herself on Elizabeth's mercy after being ousted from her throne in Scotland. But uh, that was probably one of the worst moves in history. She should have gone to France. She chose to go to England. Uh, Elizabeth made her a prisoner straight away and she would remain a prisoner for almost 20 years until she was involved in the Babington conspiracy to assassinate Elizabeth and put Mary on the throne. And good old uh, Francis Walsingham got proof of that and it sealed Mary's doom, and she was executed uh, in 1587. Okay. Um, right. Oh, we've got another one from Ali Thomas, which I probably should have asked earlier. Was Philip of Spain considered king while married to Mary? And if so, why is he left out of the Tudor canon? This is a really good one because it's sort of a quite a technicality, really. So Under the terms of their marriage act, Philip was to be styled King of England, but really it was pretty much a a title without that much substance. Um, Because on all acts of parliament as well, uh, they were to cite him as King of England and, uh, and he was certainly kind of to be referred to as that. But in reality, he couldn't make any decision without Mary. He couldn't act as King in his own right. And he was only given the title of King of England for Mary's lifetime so you know it was kind of a title without any of the power okay so he shouldn't be included in the tudor canon no get him out no absolutely not (laughs) what what about a question we should should have asked lady jane grace should she be included in the the tudor canon i think she should really i mean it's slightly divisive um poor old jane didn't hold on to the throne for very long it was the succession was altered wrongfully but she was still Uh, Queen of England for a very, very brief time. So she ought to be included, I think, and she is often overlooked. She's going to be included in my book, Dave. Really? As a yeah. as a as a monarch. Absolutely. It'll be a bit of a short reference to, to her, but, but she'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Brilliant. Uh now we've got some uh, some slightly more random ones uh uh which have come in. So um let's see how we do these. So uh Andy M, who's already asked one question on Twitter, but uh he says asking for a friend. I'm sure he's not, but uh <laughs> did the Tudors have underwear? Well, yes, but probably not as we would recognize it. Uh so they didn't have knickers is how I would politely phrase it. Um, they, um, they they kind of went a bit commando, actually. 
uh, mostly. Uh, they they wore linen next to their skin, but the underwear took the form really of a long nightshirt. That's what they would wear. Uh, both men and women would wear. Um, so th- that was classed as underwear, but it, as I say, it's, it's not as we know it. Uh, so various different kind of um, devices had to be used, should we say, um, to, to help women at certain times. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't in the form of knickers. Right. And I, I guess there's a there's a social element to this. You're talking about the the, the higher echelon society there. The, the everyday Tudors, would they have been wearing anything or, or nothing? No, not really. No, no. Pr- pretty much the same. Obviously, much simpler clothes, but um, and they wouldn't have had the luxury of of changing their linen shifts on such a regular basis as, as the aristocracy did. But you know, to all intents and purposes, yeah, it, it was the same. They didn't really have underwear as we would recognise it. Yeah. Okay. One of the most popular um, features on uh, on the History X website is a is a story ran a few years ago when someone found some medieval underwear in a castle, and it continues to get uh, thousands of hits all the time. So <laughs> I can a... imagine it's what people want to know. This kind exactly, of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Why it's not? Why hor- not? Horrible histories for grown ups. I love it. Absolutely. Uh, right. Um, just a, just a couple more. Um, K J Joyce one from Instagram uh, says. Uh, what size were the Tudors compared to people today? So I suppose that's asking, were people shorter yeah. than, than we are now? Which is um, one of the common misconceptions is that they were a lot shorter and um, because of much poorer nutrition and the like. I don't think there's any real evidence for that. We know that that Henry was um, a strapping man and he wasn't seen as that unusual. He was seen as tall, but not some kind of freak of nature. Um, so they may have been a little shorter but not not enough to to really be significant, I don't think. Okay. Um, how did the Tudors clean their teeth? Asks Rachie Len, again from Instagram. This is a great one. Um, so the Tudors, uh, the Tudor monarchs were very bad with their dental hygiene, particularly Henry VII and Elizabeth I, who had lots of rotten black teeth. What they used, what was very popular, was soot. Now, see the link here between black teeth and, and their toothpaste. So soot was apparently very effective at removing stains and it had deodorising properties. They often mixed it in with salt, which was kind of abrasive, so it'd get some of the dirt off. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, though, her toothpaste uh, contained honey and sugar. So because she liked, she had a very sweet tooth and that was the problem. So she kind of exacerbated the problem by having a toothpaste where she used sugar instead of salt as the abrasive property. So, of course, it just made things a whole lot worse. Not a good idea. So it is true then that her teeth were particularly bad towards the end of her life? They were really, really bad. And it was said by one particularly cruel ambassador that she has so few teeth that when she talks quickly, nobody can understand her. Mm. Okay, and uh, a last one, uh, which is which is uh, one of the most popular Google terms, is "Did the Tudors smell?" Now, I'm not sure exactly what they're what they're getting at, but I presume did they smell bad? Is, is what, what we're after here? Okay, very uh, brief terms. I would say if you're rich, then no. If you're poor, probably uh, the rich didn't smell. It's a real um, myth that everybody stank to high heaven. Uh, they didn't bathe very often. Elizabeth famously said, famously said, I would take a bath once a month, whether I need it or not. And she was considered a very regular bather. What they did, though, I mentioned the linen kind of underwear, so to speak. They had their linen underwear changed two or three times a day. 
Now, this was better than washing because linen is actually really good at drawing out uh, smells, dirt, toxins from the skin. So effectively, you wash your linen instead of your skin. Now, Ruth Goodman, that fantastic uh, historian, has tried this and she lived like a Tudor for about three months, uh, just washing her linens, not her skin. And she said she was still sweet smelling by the end of those three months. Of course, if you're poor, you can't afford to do that. They probably were a bit more whiffy. <laughs> so, you, I mean, you, you probably know this from your um, your experience at the historical palaces. What if you, as you entered the court of Henry VIII, what would the what sort of smells would hit you? Would it be like orange scents or something? What's 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 going on? Yeah, I mean that they, they did like perfume. Um, lavender was uh, a very strong um, smell. It was a kind of all pervading smell, really, because people like to um, keep lavender on their person. Ladies would would kind of keep it in their bodies so that they smelled nice. It also was thought to have um, kind of medicinal properties. Uh, if you inhaled the right scents, it would help to ward off disease. Lavender was also thrown onto to rushes to help the rooms of the palace uh, smell sweet. Rosemary was also very popular. So I think the first impression would have been a, actually a very fragrant one if you could get past the smell of the roasting meat from the enormous kitchens. Of course, and everyone everyone remembers the the kitchens at Hampton Court. It's uh, it's one of the most popular. <laughs> okay, right, brilliant. Well, we've run through all the questions. I, I suppose one last thing is there. Are there any really obvious questions that always get asked to you when you're doing book signs and stuff? Are there any that we've overlooked here that uh, that we should we should have a, a look at? Yeah, so the, I've, I'm very pleased that we've had the virginity question with Elizabeth and also the head injury with uh, Henry VIII. I guess I do get asked quite a few what ifs. We had a couple of them, but uh, quite a popular one is, you know, what if the Armada had succeeded? Uh, Would we all be talking Spanish and all of that kind of thing? Um, Which, of course, you know, history would have turned out radically different. We would have a completely different dynasty on the throne. In terms of the Tudors themselves, though, um, I think the one I do get asked a lot um, is just the difference between their public and their private persona. Were they just the same in private? And I certainly get asked this at Hampton Court because people like to poke around in those areas that say, you know, private and don't go through here. Um, I would say the Tudors were radically different in private. Uh, They were sort of off duty. They were probably a bit more, as we all are at the moment, kind of not necessarily dressing as smartly (laughs) as we might have been for work. Um, And uh, they also let their guard down in many other ways. They didn't have to project this image of majesty and magnificence in quite the same way. They could relax with their personal favourites. And my favourite quote uh, is about Henry VIII. Uh, Somebody who met him in private described him as the most timid man you could hope to meet. Now, that is not a description we often associate with England's most famous king. No, that's a, that's a belter. Okay, right, we are good. So um, so that's brilliant. So I should just say, um, for more information on all this, then you've got all these books, which I'll just reel off again. The Private Lives of the Tudors, Henry VIII from the Men Who Made Them, Thomas Cromwell, The Hidden Story of Henry VIII's Most Faithful Servant, obviously very topical with uh, with the Hilary, Hilary Mantel uh, books at the moment, and Elizabeth's Woman, The Hidden Story of the Virgin Queen. I've not missed any 
obvious ones there, have I? You haven't missed any. You've um, yep. One thing just to note, if I can do a shout out for Hampton Court, because it is a big year for the Tudors this year. It's the 500th anniversary of the Field of Cloth of Gold. Now, we were halfway through installing an exhibition when very, very sadly we had to down tools uh, because of current circumstances. But we really are hoping later in this year to uh, launch that exhibition, run it for longer, all being well. And we're doing all sorts of online activity uh, around that so um you know just just a plug for what will be a great exhibition yeah and obviously that's a that's a fascinating event the field of cloth of gold we've got something coming up in uh, in in both our magazines in the next uh, in the next few issues it'll be on history extra as well so it's uh, that's a that's a great story there so um yeah absolutely when 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 the world is open again then i'm sure the crowds will come flocking to hampton court and indeed the rest of uh, historical palaces and hopefully the rest of the heritage sites around the world too Tracy, thank you so much. That's excellent. Uh, we've answered all the questions that uh, that we had. So hopefully our listeners will now be uh, much educated about the Tudors and uh, and will be able to, uh, to 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 carry on and enjoy life once more. Oh, it's been a pleasure and great questions too. Thank you. That was Tracy Borman. You can find several articles written by Tracy and a huge range of other features and podcasts on the Tudors at our website, historyextra.com. Do feel free to drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to include in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Our next podcast will be released tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Catherine Fletcher about the 17th century artist Artemisia.